Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 108, Infrastructure. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we often say that you can't just expect us to start living and working in space. You first need an economic reason to get out there. And you need to build stuff, like gateways and fuel depots. Infrastructure. Here, we're just going to assume we've discovered an economic reason to get out there, and we're just going to talk about the infrastructure we need to build. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how will we build a lunar base? The main issue with building something on Earth is gravity. That is, if you don't build something properly, it will fall over. With the Moon having one-sixth of Earth's gravity, stopping things from falling over is still important, but it's a much easier thing to accomplish. The main challenge in building structures for people to live in on the Moon is that those structures will need to retain internal pressure against a vacuum. This will require a strong sealed membrane. So any thinking about in-situ resource utilisation needs to stop here. There's really nothing on the Moon from which we could construct a large sealed membrane, at least not without some futuristic molecular re-engineering technologies. So, in the 21st century, such a pressurised structure would need to be created on Earth. Probably as an inflatable sphere or a dome as these are the best geometries to hold internal pressure. Such a structure would be flown to the moon, deflated and folded up, and then reinflated on the surface. Prior to constructing such a building, astronauts may land and live in their spacecraft, or in separate landed modules, but we anticipate an inflated dome will be the first constructed habitation on the moon. But of course you have to deal with another significant issue, micrometeorites. An inflated membrane won't stay inflated for long under regular bombardment by small and probably sharp rocks moving at high speed. So you'll need an extra shell around the dome for bombardment and radiation protection. One simple option is a rocket body. Once we've got a lunar base going, There'll be a need for as many uncrewed supply landings as there are crewed landings. And once a robotic supply vehicle has delivered stuff to the surface, the only advantage in launching it again is to return an empty craft for reuse. So towards the end of their functional lives, some of those reusable vehicles might just be left on the surface. So for example, within the hollow tube of an old SpaceX Starship, that's been pushed over on its side, you can inflate a couple of domes and live safe and secure for a good long while. But otherwise, you could cover your membrane dome with layers of regolith. This would work just as well for micrometeorite and radiation protection, and it represents practical utilisation of in-situ resources. Most other ideas for in-situ resource utilisation look great on paper, but may be completely impractical in reality. For example, 
there is some calcium oxide in regolith. So if we extract that and add some raw regolith for aggregate, we'd have a ready supply of cement. But the calcium oxide extraction process needs an 800 degrees Celsius furnace. And although calcium oxide is in regolith, it's not there in especially high concentrations. So the whole process may involve lots of energy input for low yield. And while you do get cement, it's not like it's airtight, so people will still have to live within the membranes we've discussed, and any cemented structure would just be an outer shell, as we also discussed. So you could either scoop up a bunch of regolith in a day or two, or robustly engineer an energy-hungry cement production facility that would deliver pretty much the same outcome, only a lot more slowly and at a huge cost. Of course, you could always place your membrane dome in a lava tube. But the chances of a lava tube being right where you need it are pretty low. Right where we need it would be at one of the poles, with the current favoured site being Shackleton Crater, which is the location of the fictional lunar base in Season 2 of For All Mankind. The crater is big, at 21 kilometres in diameter, and it's right on the moon's south pole. Its outer rim gets constant sunlight, unlike the two weeks of sun and two weeks of darkness that's experienced at the lunar equator. We haven't yet been able to visualise the crater's interior, which being always perpendicular to the direction of sunlight, is therefore in perpetual darkness. There has been various hints from spectroscopic analyses that it might contain a lot of water ice. So one of the early objectives of the Artemis missions, planned for later in the 2020s, is to confirm if there really is a lot of water ice in there. Needless to say, having a substantial water source near a location that receives constant sunlight is an ideal location for a lunar base. So if the Artemis missions do confirm the presence of water ice in Shackleton Crater, we'll almost certainly be building our first lunar base there. This is the middle bit. As always, we can talk about what's possible, or we can talk about what's realistically achievable in the face of budget limitations and risk mitigations. But assuming we do effectively grapple with all those things, there might come a time where living and working in space just becomes routine. But of course nothing's really routine about living and working in space. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Will travel to Mars ever become routine? There is a view that whenever we do send astronauts to Mars... They won't fly there in one spacecraft. Their launch vehicle from Earth might dock in orbit with a deep space vehicle, which is built for deep space travel in a vacuum and would never have survived a launch from Earth's surface. And after the long trip to Mars, this spacecraft might dock with a gateway station in orbit around Mars, where the crew would disembark from their long-distance craft, get their gear in order and then hop aboard a lander for their trip down to the Martian surface. The advantage of this approach is that the launchers and landers can just be cockpits bolted onto a rocket engine. 
You don't need all the stuff that you will need on a months-long journey between Earth and Mars. And having the lander already in orbit around Mars means the astronauts don't have to take all that mass with them, which would require more fuel, and yet more fuel to fly all that extra fuel. And all this is important because there is a whole bunch of stuff that you'll need on the long journey to Mars. Ideally, your deep space transport vehicle will have a crew module that is swung on a long arm around the axis of the spacecraft to generate artificial gravity within the crewed compartment and hence keep the crew healthy. The crew's quarters will also need basic radiation shielding, plus there'll need to be a storm cellar, a small and very heavily shielded room that the astronauts can bunker down in whenever a big solar flare is headed their way. Apart from all that, the astronauts will need enough water for the trip there and back, plus food of course, and perhaps even a greenhouse, so they can do something useful with all the waste CO2 they generate from breathing. And on top of all that, they'll also need a spacecraft engine and an absolute ton of fuel, enough to first accelerate the substantial mass of this complex craft up to speed, and then decelerate it back down again when they get to Mars. Unless, of course, you turn your deep space transport into a cycler. We currently fly robotic craft to Mars via a Hohmann transfer orbit, where you follow an orbit round the Sun from Earth that takes you on a path to intercept with Mars's orbit just as Mars is passing by. That's usually where the story ends, but remember, this is a Hohmann orbit. So if you don't stop at Mars, you'll just keep on going around the Sun until you eventually intercept with Earth's orbit again. And if you don't stop there either, you'll eventually cycle back to Mars's orbit again. So although you burn a lot of fuel getting your deep space transport vehicle into a cycler orbit, you'll then just need the occasional correction burn to stay in that orbit. So all the astronauts have to do is wait for the cycler to fly by Earth, hop on board, and eventually disembark when it gets to Mars's orbit. They'll still have to accelerate up to get onto the cycler, and then decelerate back down when they get off at Mars, and do all that in reverse when it's time to return to Earth. But for each of those end-stage trips, they can just fly in a cockpit on a rocket engine, and hence burn less fuel. If all this sounds a bit too good to be true, well, yes, it is a bit. Remember, the Hohmann transfer orbit just gets you from Earth's orbit to Mars's orbit and back again. It's no good to you if neither planet is at that point in its orbit when you cycle past. However, since both planets move in constant cycles, it does turn out that you do eventually meet up with each planet. Each of the cycler's solar orbits takes a bit over two years, and over a period of 15 years, the cycler will fly by Mars four times and fly by Earth three times. So it's energy efficient, but slow, and the whole thing only makes economic sense if it's in regular use. So a cycler is something we might consider when travel to Mars becomes routine. A cycler is also known as an Aldrin cycler, after Buzz Aldrin, Dr. Rendezvous. 
who did the first calculations for it. Since then, various orbital mechanic geeks have proposed alternate cycler orbits and even multiple cycler orbits following different orbital angles, so you might be able to hop between different cyclers when their paths intersect, which means you could get from one planet to the other a tiny bit quicker. It's a heck of a lot of infrastructure to set up and maintain, but this is the sort of thing we'll do if travel to Mars ever does become routine. This is the end bit. So, there you go. There is some innovative and genuinely amazing thinking about future space infrastructure, which we can implement if there's a compelling economic reason to do so. Asteroid mining, maybe? Or maybe tourism? It's got to be something anyway. Just wanting to do it probably won't be enough. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to build a business case for getting on with it, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll submit the development application for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.